Coffee in Space is a podcast by S. Daniel Smith that puts the best in established and up-and-coming science fiction and fantasy writers in front of you, their readers. Dan's goal is to help you learn more about who they are as people, how they write, and how they live. Whether you're listening to this podcast at home, or in your car, or somewhere in between, Dan hopes to transport you to the crew lounge on an intergalactic spaceship where you can have a cup of your favourite coffee with science fiction and fantasy authors. So sit back, listen in, and enjoy the show. Hi everyone, this is Dan Smith. I'm a big science fiction and fantasy fan and a heavy coffee drinker. Welcome to Season 1, Episode 19 of Coffee in Space. I've got Primi Mohammed with me today to talk about her debut novel, Beneath the Rising. Primi, thanks for having Coffee in Space with us today. Thank you so much for inviting me. Primi, you're still relatively new on the scene. Care to introduce yourself to your future fans? Yeah, I, uh, I don't feel relatively new, but I think that's because publishing runs on a different clock than normal people. It's like dog years or something. Um, <laughs> I'm a government scientist. I work for the province of Alberta, uh, and I've also been publishing short fiction since about 2016. I have around 30, 35 short stories out now. Uh, I write sci-fi, fantasy, and horror, sometimes all in the same story. And my debut novel, as you mentioned, Beneath the Rising, just came out in March from Solaris Books. So speaking of Beneath the Rising, why don't you tell us a little bit about the book, give us a synopsis, uh, kind of an idea of what we'll be reading. Yeah, so it's uh, basically, it's a book about a scientist and her best friend trying to deal with the unintended consequences of an invention meant to improve the world. Uh, that ends up attracting the attention of creatures intent on destroying it. So very much in the best sci-fi tradition of scientist is trying to help and everything goes wrong. <laughs> yeah, we've definitely seen good examples of that in science fiction. And I really appreciate how you work that in the first third or so of your book, uh, where she has these, well, of course, the main inciting incident is one of her inventions. Um, Let's talk about your path to publication for just a little bit. You did mention all of your short stories. And then, of course, we have the debut, debut novel. Um, was the intention always to write short stories and then move into novel writing? Was it uh, both and? Or what was your publication journey? Uh, yeah, it's funny. Um, so I uh, hadn't written a short story for a really long time. And a friend of mine, actually, a, a writer friend of mine emailed me and said, hey, there's this story call. Maybe you'd like to submit something to it. They pay cash money. And I said, oh, cash money. Money's nice. <laughs> money is nice. And uh, that story that I quickly whipped up and submitted was The Adventurer's Wife, which ended up in the anthology that eventually won a uh, 2016 World Fantasy Award called She Walks in Shadows. So it was hilarious for a little while there, my submission to acceptance ratio was one. And I thought, oh, this is, that is know, way better is... than my acceptance rejection ratio, by the way. Yeah, that did not last. Um, but uh, <laughs> it was it was fun to kind of be able to uh, explore ideas in kind of a, a way that would take a couple of weeks instead of like forever, like a novel and then to be paid right away. So the stories were kind of, uh, I guess, for fun and for money. And the, the goal, though, really was to finish polishing up my novel uh, and gain representation for that. So 
I, I kind of did them both simultaneously. Like I, while I was querying and, and while we were on submission and stuff, I didn't stop writing short stories. Although I'm very much, uh, I guess you'd say like a natural novelist. The novel is the length <laughs> I'm most comfortable at and, and every short story is like uh, torture for me, but it's always so satisfying to finish. And yeah, so Beneath the Rising, uh, let's see, we got the offer in uh, 2018 and yeah, it just came out this, uh, this March. The, the novel itself, uh, it, it has these, these friends, it has the science that kind of goes awry. It's got a, uh, definitely a, I think I'm okay to say magical. I'm not too familiar with fantastical elements, but is magic the correct word to use? Yeah, I think so. And then, of course, their whirlwind journey to kind of put everything where it's supposed to be again. What, what are some of the themes that you're hoping readers take away from the book? That is a really good question. Uh, I really, I kind of have no idea. The novel was written, was completed in, uh, in 2002 while I was in my undergrad degree. Uh, and it's very much kind of a product of its time in terms of me, a very tired undergrad coming to terms with how science and research, but also, but also money and, and privilege and influence work. So uh, in terms of themes, I think one might be something like keep an eye out on how people react when they're used to failing up and suddenly aren't. Okay, that's deep. You're going to have to take me a little further on that one. <laughs> it's, uh, I think it's a story about, if, if we're talking about themes, it's, uh, it's a story about, I, I think, just privilege, basically. Uh, people who have it, people who don't. Uh, people, uh, creatures, beings, uh, that want to keep it at any cost. And I think there's almost a, a parallel to what we're seeing happen in, uh, in the States right now and actually worldwide with the Black Lives Matters protests and the violence against those protests that's happening is people wanting to cling to their power and influence and privilege and money at absolutely any cost. They would give up anything uh, before they would give up an ounce of that power. And that's sort of the case with the villains of the book, but it's also sort of the case with one of the, quote, heroes of the book, unquote, uh, Johnny Chambers. I think if I've noticed anything, and, the, and listeners, were, you're, I don't think you're going to be listening to this during the, the still heat of these protests and the backlash. Um, but we are definitely recording it during that time. And so, uh, it, and what I got from the book is that really whoever has whatever power they have, they don't want to lose whatever it is they've got. And so uh, I definitely agree with you that we're seeing that worked out in America right now. Wherever there is power, the person's trying to hold on to it. And, uh, and I'm glad that you brought that out. I was interested at how Nick, we're skipping way ahead in the in the script here. So listeners, bear with us. We're that seems the natural place to talk about it. So so Nick, the side almost sidekick, I want to say, uh, at least he is in the, the beginning sections. Uh, so he seems to have come from a disadvantaged childhood. Let's just get him on paper now. Can you tell us more about him and his upbringing? Yeah. Um... And I think it's I think it's crucial that you mentioned that Nick is very much the sidekick, and that's kind of the reversal of a lot of books where the boy is the main character, the girl might be the sidekick. Uh, 
But in this case, it's important to me that Nick is the narrator and also is the is the witness because witness kind of has two meanings, right? You know, it's a it's a noun. It means you are a person who has seen something, but it's also a verb. It's a, it means you are a person who is watching. And he's kind of watched um, watched Johnny his entire life. And I pictured him as kind of having an upbringing sort of like mine. Um, not a lot of money around. The parents really focused on academic performance as a future guarantee of money kind of because what immigrant parents generally want the most for their kids is uh, not not happiness. Uh, you can't see the air quotes I'm making because that's kind of a white kid concept. I kind of gathered it's security. that. It's, uh, it's, it's financial security. It's economic security. Um, so they focus so, so, so much on that as your kind of way into something where the ground isn't moving anymore. And so he feels ultra responsible for that and for the running of the house and looking after his siblings uh, after the divorce. And what Nick has are attachments, uh, as, as well as a pretty bad uh, undiagnosed case of anxiety, I think. Um, yeah, listeners, and, and that becomes very apparent uh, uh, about a third of the way through the book when they are in an airplane. You will, there's no missing his anxiety. Poor Nick. <laughs> Yeah, I can't imagine my career as a sailor if I had uh, Nick's uh, anxiety issues. Yeah. But anyway, I've interrupted you. Go ahead. No, no worries. Yeah, uh, so aside from his anxiety, he's got, uh, he's got attachments. And since one of those is his very best lifelong childhood best friend who he loves more than anybody, that's what involves him in the story. He's not used to um, like looking away and letting other people take care of things because he's he's quite aware, uh, A, that they won't, or B, that if they do, it might be in a way that makes his situation uh, or, or that of his siblings even worse. Um, he's very used to taking responsibility. And that, I think, is a super common thing, again, with immigrant kids, but also, I think, with just um, having that disadvantaged background in general, is that you do take responsibility. You're very used to being accountable for things. Um, and, and that's something that kind of contrasts him with, with Johnny, who uh, just kind of does whatever she likes and doesn't really think about the consequences and doesn't have kind of these, these same emotional attachments uh, that he does. And very much a, a contrast between them that is caused by their different situations growing up. Yeah, I'm trying to capture some of this into a question because I grew up the oldest child in a, no offense to my family growing up, but we weren't well to do. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not trying to deny any privilege. I'm just trying to state facts. And I also grew up, you know, helping dad on the farm also being responsible for getting the kids to school, uh, you know, when mom and dad were working and things of that nature. Um, but I can see that there is a different level of responsibility than even I feel I had when I was growing up. And I, I think that's interesting that you captured it from um, his disadvantaged side, I guess I'll say. I don't know if I, I don't want to say anything wrong, but I think I'm gathering what you were intending to, to say. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah, it's yeah. the 
less you have growing up, the less you think, oh, I can just be careless and do whatever yeah. and watch people do whatever. You, you just, you feel very grown up and very responsible, I think. Yeah, I agree. Um, so not to psychologically uh, diagnose Nick, but he was my personal favorite character of the, the book. So it's just going to have to be how it is. Um, <laughs> but he does seem to also have um, some codependent behaviors. Was that where, where basically Johnny can keep doing all these things that kind of sound like she's a jerk um, and definitely doesn't have to think about the responsibility that he has to or feels he has to. But he continually, not forgives her, I guess, but he seems to continually go back to her as the lead in him, the sidekick. So did you do that on purpose is the question, or is that just uh, observations you've made about people and it just worked its way into your book? A uh, little of column A, a little of column B, I think. Okay. Um, I definitely at first wanted him to feel as if he was being dragged along. And, you know, the Again, I was writing this between the ages of 18 and 20, and none of us did anything alone. None of us wanted to do anything alone. Uh, you know, our kind of understanding of life was that uh, we had evolved in, you know, to live in a society and we shouldn't be doing stuff alone and it would be better if we were doing stuff with friends. And uh, Nick, I think, doesn't look too much into that or why he only really has one friend. Um, it's, it's hinted later in the book that this is not by accident or coincidence, which is really unfortunate. And, uh, yeah, it's, uh, he stays with her partly because he feels responsible for her and for keeping her out of trouble and for helping her. And when he starts to take a more active role, it's because he is basically trying to save himself as well as her. Yeah, well, I think you did a really good job of capturing it, I'll just be honest with you. Um, okay, so let's turn our attention a little bit to Johnny, Joanna. Um, so I, I think I've already kind of said how I felt about her, at least early on. Um, so can you tell me about developing her as the character? Did you, just like we're talking about column A and column B for developing Nick as a little uh, codependent, a little independent uh did you also develop Johnny very specifically for her attitude or did she kind of write herself? Uh, she really, she kind of wrote herself, I got to say. Uh, during edits, when I was polishing the book up to, to, to query with, I kept thinking, yes, but it's like, but it's good that she's a pain in the ass. She wants to be a saint and anyone who wants to be a saint is, is by default usually a terrible person with a horrible personality. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, and if you, if you had everything she had in terms of money and advantages, uh, what reason would you have to not be a pain in the ass, to not be really thoughtless about most things and to, to be, you know, not incredibly self-centered and to see everything in the world, uh, as a problem that you and only you could solve. I mean, I mean, we're seeing that now with certain, uh, certain very very personally focused tech people who are not geniuses, but who come from privilege and who have never really had a limitation or a boundary put on them in their entire life. And I think that develops into a certain type of personality such that when it does run up against a problem it can't solve, it, it just fractures and it doubles down and becomes even more self-centered, I think. 
Yeah, almost a uh, knight in shining armor complex. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, where the uh, the almost drug-like hit to the uh, ego system is being able to solve the problem and be the hero. Yeah, and um, she mentions that in the book fairly often. She says, yeah. I want to save the world, I want to save lives. And everyone's like, oh, it'll, you know, that, that sounds great. And it yeah. looks like only you have the money and ability uh, to do so. So it just, it keeps feeding into her and she just gets worse and worse. And it's yeah. a good thing she's only 17 in the book. Yeah, and I just, you know, I'm, I'm not certain not trying to make your you know, leave you this conversation with a, you know, a big head or anything, but you do a really good job of capturing uh, that attitude in her. And then also the, the kind of conflict that a person, I'll say normal people uh, would have with, oh yeah, that is actually a really good idea. And so let's hope she can fix it. Mm-hmm. Um, even if it looks like it's tanking right in front of us. <laughs> um, so anyway, okay, so that was good. Let's get to you. You have not one, but two science degrees. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. (laughs) And what are they in? Uh, The first one was molecular genetics, which is the one that I was writing beneath the rising during the last two years. Uh, And then I worked in a virology immunology lab for a little while and then went back to do uh, an environmental science degree. Okay, so those are really way more impressive than my bachelor's and master's experiences. So good job. Okay, so uh, what role do those degrees, if any, play in Beneath the Rising or your short fiction? Yeah, I, uh, I think both inform my writing a lot, really. Not always consciously. Uh, you'll notice that a lot of the science in the book is weird, uh, weird and impossible physics, which yeah. was definitely not my forte. <laughs> um, but in terms of making research kind of easier and more efficient because obviously they, they absolutely teach you how to research and to keep everything organized. But they also help see the big picture, how things work together that seem to be unrelated. And that's very fun in fiction, seeing those connections form. And it's very fun in science. But the other thing, particularly the first degree, not so much the second, was being able to see scientists as people, and not just people, but people that come with whole set of, uh, you know, the usual limitations and biases and uh, bigotry and inability to, to spot certain things and carelessness and lack of consideration and how these people fit into and try to fit into and slot themselves into science and research itself as a particularly um, limited and, and sort of hidebound system with some of the limitations there for good reasons and some that are just basically limited to um, class and opportunity and, and geographic limitations and things like that. Okay, so let me follow it up with uh, the idea of writing uh, magic or fantastical elements into your stories. Does your scientific brain ever say, no, this one, this is too far, or are you just? Uh, imaginative to the point where anything can go? I think anything goes, yeah. Uh, In fact, that was a comment we got back fairly frequently when the book was on submission to editors, was we love it, but we don't know where to shelve it. So this is an alternate history, also sci-fi, also horror, also fantasy. Uh, Can you tell her to take out a couple of those genres and then we'll take a look at it? Um, (laughs) 
Yeah. Unfortunately, the story doesn't work if you take out yeah. any of them, and the sequel doesn't work either. So. Well, I'm glad. Uh, I'm glad you didn't, to be honest. Thank you. <laughs> okay, so as you know, um, I like to ask guest authors to read a little from one of their stories. Uh, what do you have for us today? Yeah, um, I'll be reading from Beneath the Rising. Um, a little bit of Nick's internal monologue where they are uh, flying to Morocco after he's destroyed the bathroom Very uh, cool. to see if they can find what Johnny says she needs to solve the problem she more or less caused. Okay, that oh. sounds great. Take it away. Okay. I was worried about the passport setting off some kind of alarm when it was scanned, but it didn't. Rutger did good work. My God, these days I couldn't imagine what would happen if I had tried to get on a plane with a fake passport and got caught private room, the rubber glove, a million years in jail. It was traveling with Johnny that got us through, I realized, even though they had given her some flack for the ticket purchase because she was under 18. It was traveling with a white girl, traveling with money. I would take it. It wasn't until we were on the plane, buckled into our first class seats, that I let myself relax. Nothing could get us up here. The man in the blue jacket hadn't been in the line to board, and he sure wasn't in first class. We were separated from economy, not by a curtain, but a sturdy door, and there were only six passengers for 20 seats, none of whom seemed to alarm Johnny the way he had. First class even had its own bathroom, which I proceeded to destroy 10 minutes after takeoff. I half expected the flight attendants to wear hazmat suits as I sheepishly crawled back to my seat. Are you okay? Johnny whispered. Do you have the anxiety poops? I have not got anxiety. I've just got the poops. Uh-huh. Drink some water. My stomach is too damn sensitive. It's like a burglar alarm that goes off when a bird lands on a house. I wondered how it would react to being in a new country. All that strange food and foreign water. Unless Johnny had something for it. I hadn't even had time to get all my shots before we left. Johnny hadn't even brought it up. Probably because she had had all of hers for years, and I'd never even left Canada before. If I shipped myself to death, would she pause to memorialize me before racing ahead to solve the mystery and close the gate? The greater good, you know. She had this mantra, or manifesto, anyway, this immovable hierarchy in her head that she'd tell reporters, students, anyone who asked, about how you had to get people food and clean water and a roof over their head before you got to anything else, how you had to vaccinate their babies, prevent the early childhood diseases, quickly and completely treat whatever you had failed to prevent, and then leave people to it at once and in totality. Yeah, yeah, nicely done. Yeah, oh, sorry. Okay, Welcome. so uh, so thank you, uh, Premi, for that. That was really great. And uh, I was, I had a goofy, dumb smile on my face half of the time you were reading that because I remember that section and <laughs> it was a lot of fun. I mean, poor Nick, but it was a lot of fun. Um, okay, so what's next for you? You mentioned a sequel. Tell us what's going on. Yeah, um, so uh Astute readers will have noticed that the initial deal was for two books, so that was actually Beneath the Rising and a sequel to Beneath the Rising. And I think we're still settling on the title, so my editor has asked me not to yell too much about it until publicity efforts start, but I believe that's due for release in late 2021, and um, I did turn it in on time, about an hour and a half before my deadline. So Yeah, and we remember that. 
because you and I were exchanging emails during that time. Oh my God, I was so tired. That was a tight, <laughs> tight window for you. It was very tight. <laughs> and uh, aside from that, um, next year I actually have a novel novella coming out from ECW Press. Uh, and it's kind of a, uh, I guess you call it a climate fiction, cli-fi, a post-apocalyptic book about uh, rebuilding society and uh, and making some tough choices under very difficult post-apocalyptic conditions. <laughs> there have been a lot of authors I've interviewed in the last couple of months that have been either talking about post-apocalyptic or, or writing it themselves. Uh, and of course, you and I just came from an author event where you were the panel and I was the observer of, or you were on the panel. Uh, of post-apocalyptic. It's, it's of course, I think gaining a little traction because of COVID-19. Uh, we're starting to come out of those restrictions now, but um, I, I, for one, am looking forward to the, uh, the cli-fi, uh, the climate fiction, yeah. um, and, and of course the sequel, but I got time for that since it's going to be, you said late uh, 2021, is that correct? I think they told me late 2021, yeah. Yeah. Um, Okay, that's great. Thanks for uh, telling me about that. And uh, thank you so much for your time. I really enjoyed our chat. Yeah, um, thank you very much. In the final few minutes we have, tell us how people can find out more about you and your work. Uh, well, my website is uh, premiemohammed.com, uh, just my name.com, which I try to keep updated with things that I'm doing. And I'm always on Twitter at premiesaurus. Awesome. And uh, listeners, as always, I will link to... Uh, to that in the, the show notes on Buzzsprout. Um, okay, so uh, thanks for that. And then thank you for being my guest today, Primi. And thank you all for listening to this episode. Take a look at Primi's books wherever you buy your books and be sure to subscribe to the Coffee and Space podcast. I'm Dan Smith, and I can't wait until we meet again over a cup of coffee and space. <laughs>